there, I'm Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine. Today on the podcast, taking stock of the pandemic with two leaders in the Massachusetts community hit hardest by the virus. It was a year ago that our world was turned upside down by coronavirus, and no place in Massachusetts was turned more upside down than the city of Chelsea. In April of last year, it had the highest coronavirus case rate in the state. A year later, more than 8,000 of Chelsea's 40,000 residents have tested positive for COVID, the highest per capita rate in the state. Joining us to talk about what Chelsea has been through and where it is today and where it's going are Tom Ambrosino, the city manager in Chelsea, and Gladys Vega, executive director of La Collaborativa, a Chelsea nonprofit that has been at the forefront of delivering resources and services to the hard-hit community there. Gladys Vega, thanks so much for joining us. And just take us back to those days uh, in March of last year. And when did you realize that, you know, that this virus was coming for Chelsea in a big way? Somehow in March 5th, when um, a woman from the Boston Free Food Project offered a truck full of food. And, um, and I know that some of our staff were not in the office. Everyone was pretty much gone. And we were supposed to be going to an Irish celebration held by Senator Saldi Domenico. And this food um, truck came to my house. I said, let's put it in the truck. Um, And I remember that I did a posting on Facebook and over 250 people came 10 minutes after the um, post. And I was like, oh my God, what is happening? And how come people in our community are already looking for food? Um, And people were telling me I've been laid off. You know, they cut my hours, people are getting sick. And for me, that was sort of like the beginning of this amazing journey in terms of trying to get food security and sustain our housing situation. So that for me was, um, it was a critical time for us to basically work with our community and provide. We were never in the food business. We became involved in, in food just because we identify the need and we use the full line as a um, lifeline to ask people while they were in the full line, what else can the Chelsea Collaborative do for you? What else can the city do for you? And then that's how we identify 389 people that were COVID positive in the line of food and we began our delivery service. And from there, we've been doing very innovative new, new things that we were not doing before. And I mean, it's sort of in terms of uh, having to innovate and figure out as you were uh, as you were going along. I remember uh, Tom. Uh, we spoke back in April, just sort of weeks into this, and 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 you said at the time, "There's no playbook here." Uh, what was it like for you in those early days uh, as the city manager in a community that was really being overrun by a virus, but one that people really were still trying to figure out and we didn't have, you know, a very much understanding of it. Yeah, I think it was just, we started to receive anecdotal reports, some coming from Gladys of how the virus was starting to impact the community. Uh, Individuals were being uh, thrown out of their apartment because they had COVID and roommates would not let them in. Uh, People were, you know, were becoming 
immediately an overnight homeless uh, because of COVID issues. And as Gladys described, the food insecurity was starting to skyrocket. And so we realized at that point that this virus was really having a disproportionate impact on our city. Our police chief at the time, Brian Kais, was collecting uh, statistics from other communities, from other police chiefs about uh, the impact of the virus. And when he shared them with us, we saw how significantly higher the numbers were in Chelsea. And at that point, realized that we had sort of a unique situation here. So it really required us to scramble and to, as Gladys said, try to do things innovatively that none of us had done before. Gladys, as she said, was never in the food distribution business. We were certainly never in the hotel business, but we had to get into that with our neighbor Revere in order to meet this need where uh, COVID positive patients had nowhere to go. Right. And I remember at the time, I think what you're referring to was this arrangement where some nearby hotels were set up uh, as kind of quarantine stations where people could, uh, you know, go and leave their households to try to not expose family members and others. Can you talk a little, Tom or Gladys, both about help describe what made uh, Chelsea so vulnerable? What are the circumstances there that 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 uh, led to it becoming such a hot spot for the virus in the state? So for me, I think it was um, as a low income community, I think was years of a community that has been neglected. The fact that we have, you know, absentee landlords, the fact that the proximity to Boston has um, sort of like punished us, right? In terms of the high cost of living. Um, we are a city that slowly became gentrified. Um, I think also that in order for people to afford Chelsea, you have three different families living in a three bedroom apartment and they may be family members with uh, the brother and his wife and then the mom in another room, et cetera, or pretty much 16 strangers per a two bedroom apartment or a three bedroom apartment. So for a spread like the, a, a virus like the coronavirus, this was the ideal setting for a pandemic like this one. So that is why I think that the spread, you know, took no, no, you know, it took us completely, um, in, in, by surprise, and, and it really, really hit us extremely hard. But you also have to understand that the living conditions were bad, but also 80% of our community members work in the service industry. These people were working in hotels. The, you know, they were taking the, the tea to go to Boston and clean offices. They were working at the airport. So they were working at the produce center, and nobody had enough masks. People didn't have gloves. We had basically nothing. Our staff was providing boxes with very limited resources and people in the line were with the coronavirus positive themselves. And they would tell us, I just tested positive, but I have no food. And we would literally remove them from the line. So I think all those things contributed to us being sort of like the, the center, the epic center of the pandemic. Yeah, I would echo what 
uh, Gladys said. I mean, this is a virus that really spreads rapidly in crowded conditions, and the people in Chelsea live in crowded conditions. They go to work in crowded conditions, mostly on public transportation, mostly on buses, and they work in crowded conditions, in grocery stores, in food manufacturing facilities, in hospitals as essential workers. So because their whole lives is around crowded conditions, this is a place where lots of people got sick. Mm -hmm. And I remember also back in April, Gladys, when the, the National Guard was doing food distribution, but you also and others in the community were setting up sort of pop-up uh, uh, food pantries uh, in other locations. And um, I remember talking to you. I mean, you were, I don't even know how many hours a day you were going. Um, did it, I mean, was there a time around then or during the pandemic when you just sort of felt like I mean, did you worry that things were just sort of spinning so out of control? And and again, this was such an unprecedented thing. We did not know exactly the kind of trajectory it was going to take. Uh, Did you have a moment when you sort of just felt overwhelmed and that you just weren't really sure, uh, you know, just about kind of moving forward and handling it? So, Michael, I remain overwhelmed every day. Yeah. Because the situation hasn't gotten much better. People are being displaced. And situations in Chelsea are, they're like different. It's a different era now. But at that time, we actually didn't, we were reacting and constantly reacting. And we were como robots. We were literally like in this, like you wake up around four o'clock or five o'clock, knock on the doors of the warehouses in the New England Produce Center, find out whatever they're not using that they're able to donate, put in that truck, and take it to the 318 Broadway. So we were in sort of like reaction mode on a regular basis. But I tell you, I think the hardest thing for me is that I'm very emotional. I hug people, right? And I had to pretend that everything was okay. And because people were relying on me to guide them and to lead them in whatever it was to tell them it's okay to go to Riviera for a hotel. It's okay. They're going to provide food. They're going to, nothing to do with immigration. They're going to ask you questions, but it's okay. Um, It was so hard because at times I wanted to be on a constant crying mode, but I have to put this mask on to make sure that people felt that I was strong and that I was saying, it's okay. We're going to be okay. We're going to make it. Just, you know, go to the hotel. Just tell your family members that you have the coronavirus and that they need to get tested. I think the hardest part, Michael, for me was the, um, the, the city of Chelsea didn't move quick enough with testing. I think the, the, I, I kept being extremely concerned that the testing didn't happen right away. Be, and, I respect, and I respect the fact that because of the unknown, people were saving the test for the, um, for the essential medical workers and the first responders. But I kept saying in my community, people are dying. People are extremely sick. You know, unless we test them by sending them home and the, and the hospital not saying, I send home 300 people, we're not pushing for, you know, quick tests. So for me, and I, until this day, just because we have vaccination, I still push for testing. I don't want people to feel that because we're getting 
vaccinations at the levels that we're getting them, people should not be getting tested. I feel that they both go the same way. My staff members got all the vaccinations at the food pantry and at the collaborative, at La Colaborativa. And every two weeks, I'm telling them, we're going to go and get tested every two weeks. We have to. So, and, I, and I do it not only because of our safety, but also to demonstrate to people that unless we continue to do these things, we're not going to heal and the pandemic is going to continue to, to happen. Mm. And Tom, do you, uh, I know there was a lot of question early on about testing. And again, the state was scrambling to figure out would they set up these kind of, you know, public sites in, uh, you know, public, you know, parking lots of grocery stores. I know in Chelsea, there was initially a focus on some of the big uh, uh, public housing buildings. Um, do you sort of, you know, looking back again, everything was happening quickly and a lot of unknowns, as Gladys said, do you, do you have sort of have regrets or do you sort of in looking back, are there things you might have done differently? I, I, I was also struck looking back at when you and I spoke in April, you said something that's very unusual for public officials to uh, say, and you said, I, I, I'm making mistakes, uh, you know, which I think goes without saying that that was true for everyone at the time. But in look, looking back, how do you how do you think about things? You know, certainly lots of things could have been done better. Gladys mentions testing. It took a long time for us to get to a point where we felt we had adequate testing in the city. But, you know, it, it was clunky at first, but we got to a point where we were doing testing well and continued actually in the city to do testing well. I feel like we're sort of at the same point with vaccines. It's clunky. The, 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 the rollout is slow. It's frustrating for people. I'm hoping that another month from now that we will sort of be where we were in, with testing in September. Like it worked. It was set up in the city. There was adequate locations. People who wanted to test could get tested. I'm certainly hoping that that's where we are in vaccines if we are uh, we're looking back 30 days from now. Um, in terms of vaccinations, there was a story just a couple of days ago um, reporting some pretty troubling figures in terms of vaccination rates uh, among Latinos in the state and looking at the communities with the largest Latino populations, including Chelsea, which uh, the story in the Boston Globe said the city was 68% Latino, but only 7% of Latinos in Chelsea have been vaccinated uh, compared to about a third of the white residents. What what sort of, uh, what's going on there, Gladys, in terms of getting to vaccinations? So I think, um, so I think it's a combination of different factors. And that is why tomorrow we are going again with, we've been doing this for three weeks and we're gonna do it until the end of March. We're going out with senior nurses, physicians, knocking on doors just to basically talk to people about vaccinations. Mm -hmm. Also, the, the rollout, it's a little bit too slow. Also, the, um, the, the system that the state had in terms of the, you know, the, the computer system going down, the program that they were using not working, um, you know, people do want to get vaccinated. I've been advocating a lot for um, mobile vaccinations. I have right now close to 750 names of people from the produce center. I have their names, their birthdays, their phone numbers and addresses because they're ready to be vaccinated. They work in the food service industry 
And they said, if a stop and shop is allowed to, um, to get vaccinations, we should be getting vaccination because we work in the food industry. So I think in terms of, I think it's different factors, the fear also of people um, not knowing about the myths also. I think that, you know, people talk about Moderna versus Pfizer and how Pfizer, Moderna means that it's more modern than Pfizer, which it could be like falsa, like false in Spanish is close to that. So all these things have contributed to people being um, a little bit slower, but we have a waiting list. I really think today that is not so much the case. Today is basically that we don't, we're not getting enough. I think that Chelsea is not getting enough vaccinations, but I really think that if you were to tell me, Gladys, we have 10,000 Johnson & Johnson vaccinations coming to Chelsea, I tell you that the magic will happen and we will make people, we will get people vaccinated. We're doing everything in our power to educate them and to deal with these myths and these rumors about what works and what doesn't work. But I actually think it has to do a lot with the amount um, and the different levels of the rollout. And Tom, I know that um, there's been some concern about the way the vaccination uh, distribution is working and, um, and concern that some local health departments have been kind of cut out. I know that the Chelsea, head of the Chelsea Public Health Department was one of uh, several dozen uh, leaders across the state that expressed that in a letter this week. Do you, uh, do you have concerns about, about uh, how, how the vaccination system is working? I think a lot of municipal leaders have felt that uh, working more closely and allowing local public health uh, authorities and local boards of health to be more involved in this vaccination effort would be uh, more beneficial. I mean, certainly in phase one, when we were vaccinating uh, first responders and home health aides and home health workers, uh, there was a lot of reliance on local boards of health. They they were effectively delivered those vaccines to their first responders and to home health aides and home health workers. And I think a lot of us expected that that process would uh, continue. The, the state pivoted to these larger mass vaccination sites. And I think a lot of municipal officials feel that that hasn't all been the most effective way to deliver vaccines. But, you know, I, I don't want to be overly critical of the, uh, of the governor's efforts. This is very difficult. And frankly, a large part of the problem is just the constraint on actual vaccines themselves. If we had, you know, if supply weren't an issue, I think 90% of this problem would be solved. And I'm hoping it will get solved as the supply starts to increase. And the expectation is that it will. And we might just be, you know, 30 days away from that. Mm -hmm. And um, so we've, we've heard a lot about how, uh, you know, in places like Chelsea, the pandemic has sort of exposed or exacerbated uh, these huge uh, inequalities that already existed, uh, whether in health, housing, all sorts of areas. And, and that's been a constant theme. But I guess I just wonder, do you think we're, are we, are we learning from that? And is it going to make a difference going forward, Gladys? Or do you worry that it'll be sort of back to business as usual? So I hope it's not back to um, business as usual. Um, I think that the stuff that we've seen around housing and 
the displacement that is happening, the people that we get in our office. So we have, we work with two different groups. We work with housing families and CAPIC. They've been like an incredible two partners in terms of helping us financially set up, um, and, and of course the city set, setting up, you know, um, transitional housing. But I tell you, it's from right now we have 13 people, well, 13, 14 people today, 14 people in hotels. And every week we get from 11 to 15 people in hotels. People come out of the hospital or they, they get, they go out shopping. When they come back, their, their locks have been changed. And then we have to get a police officer because when Noria Elise, who is our housing director, calls the person and says, um, could it be possible for Mauricio to pick up the clothes and the bureau that he left behind when you evicted them? What they basically say is Mauricio owes $6,000. Unless he pays, we're going to hold his belongings until he pays. So there we have to work with our friends at the Chelsea Police Department and ask the chief guys to give us a detail for 20 minutes so we can send our food truck with our employees to remove everything wrap, you know, real fast. And then we are storing it in the second floor of our food pantry. But those situations are like severe. And I tell you, Michael, I wish I can lie and tell you the two years from now, we'll be better off. But unless we are creating jobs and, and different skills, and unless we are securing some type of transitional housing, some type of housing where a person can live and not share a, 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 a three-bedroom apartment with you know 16 other people, unless we do all those things, our situation is not going to be anytime soon better. Like we tell people when they say we're getting evicted, I'm like, okay, tell me how much you owe. Or we owe you know, from 10000 to 15000 Or those individuals that say, I owe $300, $500. I'm like, okay, Get your landlord on the phone. We're going to write them a check and we're going to write them a check for three more months to secure housing. Those are the things, crazy things that we've been doing. And Tom, where do you, how do you feel, uh, you know, where, where is Chelsea at right now? I think uh, we've just seen that it's actually fallen out of the red zone, the state's way of mapping the severity of the virus. So the, the virus, it, you know, um, rates are down somewhat, but I think as Gladys points out, um, the impact, the the sort of devastation that this pandemic has has uh, has waged and left in the city seems very much still going in in, in ways that are uh, you know you're not going to you know sort of turn a switch and climb out of it. We know in other communities, I think people are back to work. We hear there's traffic res- resuming on the highways. It's sort of like. But 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 it does not seem like Chelsea is 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 anywhere close to that that stage in terms of uh, the state of things for folks there. So our, as you mentioned, our daily case counts are down, and that certainly is a positive step. Um, but the economic impacts, as Gladys mentioned, are going are lingering and will linger for a long time. And I think that it cries out for a need for long-term sort of sustained government support 
to deal with the ongoing housing insecurity issues, the ongoing food insecurity issues, the ongoing problems that small businesses would have. I think there's a real need for government to step up in a much bigger way than it ever has in the past to provide sustained help. And I will say that this American Rescue Plan Act is a step in that direction. There is sustained support in that act. And I think that's where government, not just at the federal level, but at the state level needs to go if we want to ameliorate the problems that have been caused by COVID. And what, Tom, do you sort of take away from this whole experience as a as a city manager, as a public official? How, what sort of would you say are the big lessons that you've maybe learned in terms of how to approach uh, crises like this from your from your perspective? So I think it's a lesson that there is an important role for government to play in people's lives and government can be a source for doing real good and helping people in times of crisis. And I think you saw the difference between poor government at play and good government at play, both at the national and, and state and local levels. I, I think this was a lesson in how to prov- how good government can really make a difference in people's lives, in, in making things better during difficult times. Mm-hmm. And Gladys, I was just going to ask you, maybe sort of in closing, looking ahead, you talked about how, you know, you've been sort of forced to just be sort of almost on autopilot or keep going and and kind of keep your your resolve uh you know for the people that look to you for leadership do you do you think i don't know down the road is there going to come a time when you finally you know kind of are able to exhale and do you think you'll at that point it might you know there might be a delayed effect it may sort of hit you at that point that you can kind of really come to terms with with this just this horror that that you've you've been in the midst of so I think I would begin to feel that way once, probably once 80% of my population um, and my neighbors are vaccinated. Just a little bit of that healing process that we're, we're heading to the right direction. It's been a full year of, um, since the pandemic took this toll on all of our community. And I tell you, it changed my life drastically. Um, our families and our business forever will we'll do things differently. I really think that we will all take things differently from now on. You know, I think we, 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 we loved Chelsea before, we value our community, but the sense of neighboring, the sense of um, unconditional love for others has grown to, to a, a place that is so different than before. How I see my hope is that we were so fearful for all the unknowns that that fear made us stronger. And I think the resiliency of our people that were able to survive this pandemic in the worst, in the worst, um, in the worst condition, right? Um, looking for food. I mean, we have young people that have told us in our summer, in our year-round program that they are giving up their rooms so that their parents can rent it so that they can pay for the rent or that they can buy food. I mean, so those are the situations, but that they're not mad at their parents. No, really tell me, Gladys, he told me he's not mad at his parents because he knows that his parent is on survival mode and that in order for him 
for them to sustain our home and our siblings, this is what he needs to do. And for me, it's like, wow, incredible. Like everything that people are doing in order for, to, for them to cope and sustain families. But I agree with um, Tom that federal funding and other strong resources must come to Chelsea, but in, not in small amounts. It has to come in large amounts because we have been neglected. The blanket of poverty was lifted through the, with the pandemic. We were already extremely poor. So I really think that, you know, through workforce development, through training, through ESL classes, through all those things that we need to do and continue to do, we will enhance and make our community stronger, but we're not there yet. And it would take us years to come in order for us to see that again. We were, before the pandemic, we were like heading. We were, I always tell my, my, my families and the people that I talk to, I felt like I was like that close to opening that little gate and throwing people inside so that they can make it. And right now the gates have been closed and we're like in the back, in the back of the line, not seeing anything. Well, we certainly hope for, uh, for those better days to return uh, soon. And uh, I want to thank you both so much for talking uh, to us here on the podcast. Uh, Gladys Vega from the Chelsea Collaborative and uh, Tom Ambrosino, City Manager of Chelsea. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. And this has been another episode of the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time.